This is episode number 127 of Patrick Jones Baseball, and on this episode we have Jim Beadle. Jim is a 3D motion capture performance consultant for K-Motion. Um, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you probably have heard me talk about K-Vest and K-Motion. Um, I have one myself. It's awesome. It's a 3D motion capture system that essentially measures efficiency measures how someone's moving from the time they pick up their front foot to the time they they land that foot back down again and then into contacts you can like literally see based off of the graphs what fires first their pelvis shoulders hands in what order is it the correct order are they decelerating are they stopping themselves jim does a, a really good job better job than me even explaining exactly what it does and how it helps in this episode and i want to bring jim on because if, you, uh, if you're on social media like me, I'm sure you've read a lot of the different articles lately talking about K-Motion and Blast Motion, especially from a hitter's perspective. I had uh, Matt Tanner on a Blast Motion a couple weeks ago, and he explained everything when it comes to Blast and why it's so important, and wanted to bring Jim on because those two companies, Blast and, and K-Motion, are taking over the game of baseball from a hitter's point of view right now, and I think they, they bring a ton of value. So I think it's something that you're going to see more and more often and hear about more and more often, so I thought it would be kind of cool to bring Jim on so he kind of explain everything to you. If you're interested in purchasing a K-Vest, uh, why don't you head on over to the website, or you can just go to uh, my show notes, and if you type in code PJB5, you'll get $250 off. So, hope you enjoy this episode with Jim Beadle. All right, and we are now live with Jim Beadle. Jim is a 3D motion performance consultant for 3D or uh, for for K Motion. Uh, Jim, thanks for coming on today. Patrick, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Well, I know you're a busy man. You travel all over the the, the country. I'm talking to different uh, coaches. I know you have a golf background and a baseball background, and now you're you're doing um, this uh, KVS with K Motion. How like how did this all get get started? Because I know you you do have a, a golf background. So were you just a baseball fan and kind of wanted to get started into baseball too? Well, um, collegiately, I played I played baseball. Um, had a had a had a nice career in college. Uh, you know, wasn't going to go anywhere. Got hurt my junior year, so uh, I played for Dave Joust down at a small school in North Carolina called Atlantic Christian. Um, Dave has now been with the Pirates for you know fifteen plus years. Um, learned a lot from that man um, more than more than you can know um, about the game. Uh, Love the game from you know from childhood. Uh, after college, I got into. I needed something to do. Baseball career's over, so I got into golf. Uh, it wasn't a difficult transition because I felt that the motions were relatively the same. Um, so getting into golf was was easy and fun for me. I, I got pretty good pretty fast. Uh, I was a scratch golfer within about two years. Um, so after about four years of playing amateur golf, I turned pro and started to teach. So the the getting involved with K Motion was. I saw the product at my first TPI seminar. It has to be 15 years ago. Uh, I met Greg Rose. I met Lance Gill. I met um, I met Jason uh, at at TPI, and I saw KVS for the first time. I met Tony Morgan, and I thought it was the wave of the future. I thought it was the way to teach, because 2D video is is something that 
you know, from different angles, we get different information. So I purchased the KVS probably a year and a half or two years after that. I saved up a little bit of money. Uh, bought my K- first KVS about 13 years ago and, you know, started to really understand human motion and how changing the body movements and their ability to move and the mobility and stability of the body can really have a, an effect on what you're trying to do with a golf club. Um, fast forward a dozen years, uh, Tony Morgan asked me to come work for them because they're starting to get a sales force together. Uh, I was very hesitant because I had a pretty good teaching business. Um, so I was hesitant. I said, are you going to get into baseball? Because I, I love the game. I think it's something that this product can actually change the game of baseball. And they said yes. So I came on board probably four years ago. And, you know, here we are today. How has uh, that tr- that transition been into baseball? Like how has how was it received? Would you say the first couple of years you were kind of explaining it and showing it to everybody? Well, the first couple of years, um, I showed it to a friend of mine in uh, the Cardinals organization. Uh, this was before I even came to work for them. And I said to him, I said, this is going to be something that's going to change the game. It's something you have to look at. Um, and he said it was track man for the body. And I thought that was one of the best analogies you could put for what we were putting out there. Um, we then started to push really hard and producing a product that was user-friendly for the coaching staff, user-friendly for the strength and conditioning staff, and given the ability to uh, get information quickly and efficiently when you're sitting in the cage. Um, so I think that the transition from golf into baseball was kind of just my outside the box thinking and wanting to um, help out a couple of friends that I knew that were, were in baseball. Is it a little, is it more difficult wouldn't you say to kind of interpret the data, the data and what it means in baseball, just because there's so many different variables, right? Like a moving ball, you know, the location of the ball, um, just so many different things going on versus golf. It's just, the ball's just staying put. Uh, Yes. Um, In golf, we're looking at different shot shapes, which will definitely change body positions as to the shot shape you're trying to create. Um, You know, high, low, uh, left to right, right to left, something like that. In baseball, we see very similar uh, positions, but I think there's two different types of hitter. So if you're looking at the different body positions for an outside part of the plate compared to the inside part of the plate, Certain guys will try on the outside third, will try to go to right field. Some players just let the ball get deeper. Uh, The guys that let it get deeper, their body positions and numbers don't change a whole heck of a lot. I think you'll see more uh, side bend of the thorax change than anything. Um, Guys that try to go that way, you'll see some rotary numbers be a little bit different and some bend numbers be a little bit different. But other than that, I think... The kinematic sequence is the kinematic sequence and the ability to create power and speed for each individual athlete needs to be maximized. What have you noticed um, or are there any similarities that you've noticed when looking at some of the, um, the best players? Um, I think elite players uh, really understand how to use their lower half. I think they transfer energy from the lower half to the upper half extremely well. I think your inefficient players do not transfer their energy quite as well. Um, I think these guys understand how to use the ground. Uh, 
And I think elite hitters are elite hitters because they do that innately. And I think we can take a non-elite hitter and make them much better if we can teach them how to do that. Uh, ground force and the ability to work the pelvis properly in the three axes that we measure and we train being turn, uh, bend, uh, belt buckle up, belt buckle down, and side bends, how the hips are, are in position uh, at contact, I think is uh, you have a lot of similarities from elite hitter to elite hitter. Would you say that the majority of lead hitters are in sequence or what, like, what would you consider to be in sequence for KVS? I guess we can just start, you know, basic for people who maybe don't know, like the sensors and everything like that and just kind of go from there. Yeah, sure. So we put four sensors on the body. We put one sensor, uh, between the shoulder blades and a garment, a vest type garment. Uh, so the top of the sensors at the top of the shoulder blade. We put one sensor on the sacrum, so it's that very hard triangular piece of bone at the bottom of the spine that is in a belt. We put one sensor on the back of the lead elbow and one sensor under the glove in the lead hand. So the, the sensor on the back of the lead elbow points to the pitcher, and the sensor on the lead hand will be pointing to the plate as we calibrate the body. Uh, those sensors are numbered one, two, three, four, pelvis being one, torso being two, lead arm being three, lead hand being four. Um, so for a player to be an efficient mover and be in quote unquote sequence, we like to see the pelvis lead the, the race and that go out first, followed by the torso, followed by the lead arm, followed by the hand, which is then going to push that energy into the bat. Do you always see uh, good hitters in that exact sequence or will you see out of, out of sequence as well? I think the type of hitter is determined on the sequence. Um, one, two, three, four is what we strive for. I have seen a number of elite hitters that go one, three, two, four. Um, so that lead elbow is doing something prior to the chest moving. Um, still trying to determine what exactly that is. I think it's them laying the bat down a little bit earlier to try to get on plane sooner. But I'm not 100% sure. I have some thoughts about that. Um, but I, I see those two sequences quite a bit. If you ever see anything but one starting first with a baseball player, we need to address that immediately and fix that. Um, there could be a mechanical issue. There could be a um, skills acquisition issue. There could be a physical issue where there's injury or something going on in the body that doesn't allow them to drive that pelvis first. When uh, speaking of kind of like different types of hitters, um, I know earlier we were talking about, you know, everyone's built a little bit different, stiff movers, loose movers. What have you noticed looking at their kinematic sequence um, just based off of if they're a stiff or a loose mover? I think that their kinematic sequences will look similar. I think some of the the numbers that we get from positions of, you know, heel strike, first move and contact will be different. Um, you know, so your, your, um, elite hypermobile guys, um, will be, have more separation from upper body and lower body in the load. They'll have more X factor stretch, um, from load to heel strike and first move. Um, and then they'll probably rotate farther forward at contact your stiff movers will have a little less separation at, at load a little bit less X-factor stretch uh, after heel plant and first move um, and might not have quite as much rotation at contact. 
there's actually there's four other graphs as well that that come with um, K motion, and you know, the, there's the pelvis bend, pelvis angle, upper body angle, and spine rotation. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of going through each of those, like what what do you like to see, if, like just on the pelvis bend graph? So in the pelvis bend graph, let's talk about contact because that's the that's the king king of everything there. Um, I like to see somewhere between 70 and 90 degrees of rotation. Um, right I at like contact. At contact. So your hypermobile guys will be over 80. Your your normal normal movers will be around 80, and your stiffer movers will be below 80, um, somewhere in that range. So 70 to 90 to me is a fairly good range. Um, if you're 69 degrees and you're a stiff mover, I'm not going to say you're not rotating properly. Um, I think we want to see in the pelvic bend. So if zero is the belt buckle pointing at the horizon at contact, we want to see that belt buckle still pointing at the horizon, uh, maybe going up towards the sky a little bit so we can properly produce a good thoracic position, which in turn will allow us to have proper bat path and plane. Uh, and the, the side bend of the hips, we like to see the, the, the pelvis nice and level at contact. So that's the, that's the pelvic bend graph. Those are the things that the pelvic bend graph uh, graph will show. What about the uh, the pelvis angles graph? I'm sorry, that's the pelvic angles graph. The pelvic bend graph just shows the um, position of the belt buckle pointing down or up to the sky. It's it's a little bit um, more inclusive. Uh, show shows a little bit more of it, a little bit more detail on how that belt buckle is going to work. We definitely want to see. Uh, the belt buckle pointing down towards the ground uh, in the load. Uh, also in the first move, when we get to contact, we want that belt buckle to start to move up towards the sky. When we're looking at the upper body angles graph, is there a certain um, uh, number or, or range we want to see, maybe a torso rotation at heel strike or first move? That all, that all depends upon the uh, you know mobility of that player. Um, you know, I, I know some hypermobile guys that get negative 35, 36, 37 degrees. Wow. And I know some uh, stiff movers that are only 12 or 13. Um, so I think it depends upon the flexibility and mobility of the hitter um, to look at how deep that they can they can get. I think you have to then take into consideration dominant eye, how they see the, the baseball, uh, cervical rotation as well. Um, if you're getting 35 degrees deep with the chest, can you still look at the picture with both eyes? That kind of stuff. And then the last one is the uh, spine rotation. What can you tell us about that one? That is our X-factor stretch. Um, so what we want to see is when you get into your load position and your foot hits the ground, uh, you're at a certain amount of stretch. Let's call it 20 degrees. And your elite hitters add more to that before they start to move the hands forward before first move. So you're going to see, let's say, hits the ground at uh, 30 degrees of rotation with the chest, negative, and 10 degrees of negative rotation with the pelvis. And then he's going to stretch, and he's going to get to 30 and zero. Um, So he's added X-factor stretch. It's like pulling that bow and arrow back a little bit extra to create some more power and speed. And if you look at some, you know, high-speed slow-motion video of a lot of these elite hitters on, on television today, once they hit the ground, that chest stays back, even goes back farther. And that pelvis starts to move forward. They create that extra stretch, which allows these guys to hit the ball as hard and as far as they are today with exit velos well over 100 miles an hour. Okay, so we, we've kind of we've looked at all the graphs, kinematic sequence graph as well. Like what 
What type of changes do you, have you seen people try to make or make and become better just by this information? I think you'll see a lot of your younger players having very poor stretch numbers. Um, we see that a lot with the, with the academies that I visit. Uh, kids are, are turning the chest and the pelvis back um, together or even the pelvis back farther than the chest. And, you know, there's slack in the body when we don't have any stretch. And when there's too much slack in the body, it takes a long time for uh, the pelvis to take that slack out. And that's where you'll see these kids start to dump the barrel early. Um, that, that's probably one of the biggest and quickest things that we can change on an athlete. I think some of the other things are strength. You know, can the athlete use the pelvis to drive early enough and fast enough and hard enough to help create that speed? Or do they try to dump their arms and hands a little bit early to try to get to that pitch? Um, there's, there's, a, there's a variety of things that we look at, but I really think that, that those stretch numbers with the young kids are probably number one. And I would say 1A would be upper body bend is too many young athletes try to use that bend over and that extension of the chest to create power, um, probably because their glutes and core are not um, strong enough at that particular time. Those are some of the things that that I see, you know, quite a bit. What do you What do you see from older players, like maybe like minor leaguers? I think there's a really big jump from the minor leagues to the professional MLB side of the game to the big leagues. Um. Your minor leaguers, I think, have always been so good and so talented and so head and shoulders above the pool that they've been playing against that they've been get, been able to get away with a lot of de- deficiencies and a lot of um, compensations in their movement patterns. Uh, I think once they get to a certain level in the minor leagues, they start to see that the, those don't work anymore. Um, the guys who make it to the big league level have, have either always had it or learn it as they're, as they're coming up as they get stronger and faster. Um, I think that's why the time in the minor leagues tends to be a little bit longer in baseball than any other sport. Um, so I think you, you'll see very similar issues with minor league players, uh, disassociation, um, barrel dumping because of too much slack in the body. It was just with the kid uh, this past week, um, played in the college world series, had a great college world series with a, a, a college team, um, got drafted, middle rounds, um, way too much slack in the body, but he's got such great hands, he can get away with it. Um, but he says he fights uh, the inside pitch with high velocity, you can see why. So I think you'll start to see the same kinds of issues creep into the minor leagues. Uh, and if we can fix them quickly and, and early enough, I think kids have a really good chance of uh, taking big big strides. Has there anything, have you seen like any any big leaguer um, in any of their graphs and it's been something that has just jumped out to you like you've never seen it before but they're just so talented, their hand-eye coordination, everything is so good that they can get away with it and still produce? That's a really good question, Patrick. Um, I have not seen a lot of that. I have not seen a lot of big leaguers get away with a lot of lousy movements. Um bad movements. I can see compensating movements um, like the pelvis does. You know, we like to see the pelvis reach max velocity as soon after first move as possible. If we can see it hit its peak as soon as uh, right after first move and then stabilize or go down that graph, um, I think those are the guys that transfer energy well. 
you do have guys that don't do that, that kind of do um, stabilize and peak farther into the forward motion. Uh, but their hands are so good they can get away with it. But I think those guys also have a little bit higher swing and miss ratio than the guys who peak earlier. Uh, again, that's just a, an opinion, not a fact, but I, I think um, I think I'm onto something there. Um, I don't think you see a lot of really, really bad motions in the major leagues. Is it more important that the, that we focus on like them accelerating to uh, their max number of top speed or deceleration? Wow. Um, another good one. That's two in a row. Um, <laughs> I really think that those two run hand in hand. If you can create a lot of speed, but you cannot decelerate, the segment above the segment that's not decelerating is going to have to compensate and do something it's not supposed to do to get the barrel out and on the baseball. So let's say you have a player that rotates his pelvis at 600 degrees per second. That's very good rotation. But if at contact, that pelvis is still rotating at 500 degrees per second, that player hasn't stabilized very well, energy hasn't transferred up the chain, and I guarantee you he has to release that barrel and hands early to try to get it on the baseball. Those kinds of guys, I think, tend to guess hit a little bit. Yeah, and that, I you know I understand what you're saying. It's just it's interesting because it's just it's very important and that's one of the things that I'll I'll see with younger hitters is I mean you you always hear people say, "Well, you know, I want you to swing and then freeze right away because they don't stop them they don't you know, stop their body or anything. They just keep accelerating and so their barrel is not in the zone for a very long time." No, absolutely not. Um and I don't think the And I don't think the path with which the barrel travels on is very good either. I think those guys have the barrel going down way too much um, because they can't stabilize. So, you know, I love stability drills for that. I love sitting a kid on a stool or a, a physio ball and have him doing some med ball work, even swinging a bat sitting on a stool. You swing a bat sitting on a stool, your pelvis is going to have to stabilize. Mm, I like that. A moving stool. Your pelvis has to stabilize. So there's some really tr- there's some tricks out there that you see guys do. Um, but I think stabilization is as important. Slowing down is is as important to going fast as going fast is, which younger hitters have a hard time grasping. So I guess it really depends on the age of the hitter in terms of if if we want to make corrections based off of what we see with um, with this data. It's going to come down to, are they strong enough to make those connections or corrections, I should say, right now? Or if they are strong enough, would it be something where maybe it's a mechanical issue and then we just try to just keep experimenting until we we find, um, you know, what, what we're kind of looking for on the charts? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I think that with the, the K baseball system, you're able to find – a deficiency immediately you're able to look to see you know what is going on with this player you know um, combining that with the on-base use screening you're gonna get a really good understanding of who this this kid is what he can do physically what he can do biomechanically 
and what you need to do to make that player better. I think the importance of understanding a player completely uh, from a, a standpoint of mechanics as well as his physical makeup is really going to allow a coach to, I won't say fix, but allow a coach to um, try to help a kid reach his genetic potential. And I think that's all we can really do is try to get kids to get better and get to their genetic potential. Not every kid's going to play the major leagues. It's that simple. Yeah. Um, but if we can make someone as good as we can make them and their goal is to play, you know, division three college baseball and you get him there, you're very successful in what you're doing. I agree. I think, I think that's, that's a good, good point to add because, uh, we can't forget that this, uh, how hard this game truly is, even if you do have perfect mechanics. I mean, we haven't even talked about confidence or the mental game or approach or anything like that. This is just strictly kind of moving efficiently. Correct. I mean, that, that's, that's all part of the game, what you just mentioned. And un unfortunately this game is really, really hard and, you know, not a lot of people make it to the highest level, but if you do, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful journey and it's a wonderful career. Um, you know, people are, people are striving to get there every day and, you know, you look at the minor league levels and unfortunately some of these kids are trying to, you know, rely on their laurels that they were a great high school hitter or a great division three college hitter. And, you know, they go up and they face a guy who's got ungodly stuff where he's, you know, throwing 102 miles an hour on the inside part of the plate, and you 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 just have no no chance. Um, and you get you really you really get exposed very very quickly when you start to play against the elite players in this game. Um, last last question I, I kind of have for you is looking at the the speed gains um, on the the kinematic sequence. Is that something that you know everyone should be looking at? pretty good or is again just based off of how that player moves yes i think we need to look at that quite a bit i think it's very important that um a player transfers his energy from his pelvis to his torso efficiently if so if that energy transfer happens properly uh, the rest of the energy transfer is going to be good now that being said you're going to have young kids that have a waist of 26 inches um, who are rotating at 700 degrees per second. And you're going to have professional baseball players that have a waist of 36 that are rotating at 600 degrees per second. Um, we have to be very cognizant of what we're looking at here. Some, something very small can spin faster than something very big. Um, something bigger should transfer energy better. Um, so be careful if you're looking working with a very slender kid and his... Um, transfer number is ratios only 1.2 or something if he's transferring energy being very small that's still a good thing when you start to look at your older players your high school college minor league players then we really need to get them to transfer their energy you know one five one six okay so if they're below let's say one four one five then that's something we kind of it's like an alarm going off a little bit i think so it's just something i you know i've always been the type of guy who wants to um, look at something from the ground up. So if I look at something and I find some kind of issue in the pelvis, I think that's very, very important. What's going on in the pelvis? Um, how do I fix what's going on? Um, how do I get that to then move into the chest? 
Um, so if I can fix something towards the ground, the pelvis, some ground force reactions, um, I can then fix what goes up the chain uh, more efficiently. If we start at the bat, I think we're working backwards and we're still going to have compensations because we really has, haven't fixed the root cause and we haven't fixed the motor. I know I said last question, but I just thought of another one. How often okay. should these players retest uh, using IK motion? Um, I think it depends on what you're working on with the player. If it's a mechanical change where the coach is just doing a couple tweaks with, you know, uh, bad position, stride length, um, distance away from the plate, uh, so on and so forth, you can test him a little bit sooner. If you're trying to make a physical correction by getting stronger um, and learning disassociation, you know, maybe a month to six weeks. And if it's something based on injury, you should probably let the doctor determine when that player can get back in the cage at full speed. So it comes down to my favorite answer. It depends. <laughs> it always it always depends. And I nope. think the cool part about what we're doing in this game is we can do things based on each individual. It's not built for just baseball. It's built for the human performance and the and the movement patterns of each, each individual player. You know, Greg Rose says it eloquently that there are infinite numbers of ways, infinite numbers of ways to swing a bat, but there's only one efficient way for each player to swing the bat. Awesome. So that, that to me is that resonated with me way, way back when when we talked about golf. You can't pigeonhole a guy, you can't make, you know, you can't make a guy who's hypermobile swing like Mike Trout. And you can't take a guy who's super flexible and make him swing like uh, super tight and make him swing like Mookie Betts. You're going to, you're going to fail. Jim, really appreciate you coming on today, man. It's great stuff. Patrick, I appreciate your time. Uh, you're the best keep it up. You're doing great work and uh, keep promoting the game. Will do.